Gardens Ramos podcast. Conversations with aliens of extraordinary ability. So, hi everyone, this is Rodrigo Gutas. I'm your host for Practice of Solidarity, this series of podcasts by Gardens Ramos. And today I'm really thrilled to have Lila and Harriet. Lila Bullen Smith, she's a South African born MFA student at the Sunbury Institute in Amsterdam, and she's a member of No More Later. Uh, we also have Harriet Morley, she's part of the mutual support platform, also based in the Netherlands. Uh, she's an artist and art student, and uh, she's currently going through her first year at MFA. So, Lila and Harriet, I'm really happy to, to have you both here. Uh, we're going to be sharing some perspective from different localities. What is it really? How can we relate practice of solidarity? How do we exchange knowledge and practices from two different localities, you know, the Netherlands, Norway, and how can we find intersections in, the, in those similar struggles that we have to face? Uh, we will be talking about different things, collective infrastructures, and uh, practices of current solidarity. So welcome. I'm really happy to have you both here. And so Lila, maybe you could tell us a little bit more what's No More Letter, how it was initiated, when, and how do you guys came together in a way? Yeah, first of all, thank you. It's really nice uh, to be able to talk with you all. Um, and I guess No More Later is, well, first started as a kind of platform, Instagram account, and online demonstration um, initiated by two Haka'u Masa Fine Arts students at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Kazem and Julie. And kind of through sharing memes, like resources, information, et cetera, et cetera, it was supposed to be advocating and kind of highlighting and creating like a network for international students in the Netherlands um, in art academies. Because if anything, the COVID pandemic kind of just put a magnifying glass on already existing kind of issues and experiences. And yeah, we were left kind of um, to fend for ourselves. So I guess all these kind of various initiatives emerged to kind of create this like different infrastructure for care and for sharing information, especially in a country where we can't understand the native language and et cetera. So yeah, it kind of first, it first had this kind of uh, demonstrative like aspect to it as well and that was also arguing for like tuition fee reimbursement for postponing education um, or pausing it and like more broadly like the kind of rights of international students in the Netherlands but then it also I guess kind of opened up to also be just more like resource sharing and then I think last summer uh, Chazem and Julie did an open call for new members so it's kind of broadened the kind of uh, group behind it um, which is when I joined. Um, and I've been kind of following on Instagram because I'm part of the student council at my school and was like, as an on-EU student, was also kind of following this, these conversations. And so there was about like nine members from all different schools in the Netherlands, some non-EU, some EU. Um, and we started collaborating and kind of working together to kind of, yeah, create something from them or later that felt like it uh, could sustain itself. That's been a difficult process. Um, it goes up and down and it's kind of right now, I'd say we're on four members. And also as the two core members have graduated, it's a kind of different experience, but I still believe it to be something that's still got its like engine going and will take many different shapes and forms as also as it connects to other networks. Yeah. So no more later, you could say it's a COVID native organization. Well, actually, how do you find yourself? Uh, is it an organization, a collective, a network? It's just a group of artists coming together to kind of like, you know, overcome 
multi-crises together, how does that work, really? When having to put a name and to define it, mm -hmm. as for instance, the Partners Roma, we have, we're a working group, right? We have four or five people working on and off on volunteer basis, but then the network itself, you have 150, 160 artists affiliated to the network. And of course, not a member organization either, at least it is not yet. So how do you navigate those, the grammar, the lexicon mm -hmm. of, of, of that collectiveness mm -hmm. in a way? Yeah, I think that's absolutely like, it's like when something starts very organically, it doesn't maybe have these kind of like structures that are built in. So you really develop them as you, it's like a practice, you're learning as you're doing it. And that can come really naturally, but it's also be quite difficult, especially as new members come in or like people leave, people have different ideas or different goals as, as kind of coming to a shared understanding or a shared goal of what the, the platform is. So I think really right now it is, it exists on Instagram. Like it is an online resource uh, and network. And I think we're kind of seeing it as a way to connect different groups of people in the hope that it can contribute to something that has maybe a more mass scale approach that combines lots of different initiatives because there's so many and not trying to kind of take charge of that itself, but really just being yeah part of the glue in that. Great. Yeah. Harriet, thanks for yes. being so patient. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can tell us a little bit more about MSP. Yeah, totally. Uh, but yeah, also likewise, super nice to be here and have the co-communication and chats between us. It's always kind of really refreshing to to, to talk to different people. We're co-organizing different organizations in different places. But yeah, so the mutual support platform um, was kind of initiated like no more later, kind of within the COVID, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think it was, it was also kind of initiated within the Hakau MFA master's program, which at the time I think reacted very collectively teachers and students alike um, with the conditions that were placed upon the education or, or, or the working conditions at the time. So it kind of came as a, a space of resistance against that, but not only within students, teachers, but also wanted to widen the network of just this two-year master's to also include alumni and others who were interested in creating this support platform kind of lesser within the structures of the institution, but more broadly from alumni, teachers, students, and possibly even like prospective members. So it was kind of trying to acknowledge also different levels of privilege within that from being based in the Netherlands or being Dutch or being not Dutch or being international. Um, so I think the mutual support platform and also No More Later had a lot of kind of cross crossovers, even down to members of the, you know, members included as well. So I think it kind of is, is also there as a resource, but also in has arrived with the unfortunate understanding that we can't um, rely on any support from an institution or kind of already having that understanding. But I also try to acknowledge that I, and I speak for myself individually and what my experiences of the mutual support platform is. I think we um, realize that we're very much maybe not, couldn't, can't be really seen as a collective because it's never the acknowledgement of the fact that we are constantly there together. We have online meetings, but it doesn't mean we're attending every meeting. There is a flexibility to it um, of what you can offer at times and what you can't offer at times. And I think from that, we kind of have a, a, a network of people who who strive for uh, a connection with their practices through that. So we have sharing your practice events. We also have people trying out workshops or people sharing projects that they're working on. And, it, and I think the fact that it tries, tries to uh, dissolve the kind of teacher, student, alumni structures or tries to encompass 
the different networks that we kind of work within um, and strive to keep those going. It kind of opens up from just it being from the hacker UMass of just being this two years into this kind of constant growing relationship that I think itself is refreshing when you're kind of sucked in by institutions and spat out again quite harshly. It tries to be against that and think of this network or the hacker UMAFA as a longer sustained relationship and what can come from that. So I think it's kind of very evolving. We don't, we're not so kind of static in that sense because we come across many challenges, but I think we hope to kind of within our own solidarities um, try to support, support each other within that um, and, and how we can manage that going on is, is a question that I think we're all asking ourselves because there's also like this question of sustainability and I think we'll probably get onto it, but the, uh, the idea of self-preservation for collective care almost, which I think I personally am very interested in it within the idea of MSP mutual support platform that comes from my own interest and my own practice that kind of looks at caring networks and I think that's kind of what my positioning and my perspective is with being part of the mutual support platform. That's very interesting because just yesterday we were invited to do a radio show and we were talking about different things about partners from the network and how we how we operate and sometimes we stop operating because you know we have to ask ourselves like is it really possible to be hyper productive in this hyper bureaucratic world that uh and, and these sort of like super high expectations that, is, that are put on the shoulders of a lot of immigrants not only immigrant artists but immigrants as a, as a whole and so we're asking the question like how do we take care of ourselves when taking care of others right which is uh, i'm connected to what you just said uh, about self-preservation and uh, to maintaining that that web of gestures, but it also seems like MSP is, is um, in that sense might be also quite close to to Varnashrama in the sense that we uh, we want to amplify that gesture, right? I mm. mean, Varnashrama didn't sort of like was not uh, generated out of the blue. It is sort of like the consequence of a prior gesture on an individual level, but then that gesture becomes sort of like the glue that articulates, you know, the web of, of individuals and, and allows for, for these multiple ways to be generated within the umbrella or under the umbrella of this, uh, of this network, right? What do you consider to be the most difficult challenge for non-EU artists at the moment? It will be a tough question because, um, you know, you start talking about immigration, but then you very quickly start realizing that it's also, or even more so about economic justice. And then, of course, like, you know, identity politics come from the side. Uh, but then, for instance, we actively have been trying to avoid identity politics because we don't want, we actually want to keep the focus on what we think is the most pressing matters, which are, you know, economic justice and for immigration policies for artists. So uh, what's your take on that? I mean, so I think to sort of be very transparent, so I'm a, I'm British, so I live in the Netherlands and I moved to the Netherlands when the Netherlands was still part of the EU. So my experience is also from a perspective of privilege and also going through a process of uh, the UK kind of detaching from the, the EU and, and, just, and, and that process itself and being kind of hyper aware of the differences of privilege that actually have changed within that. But by being in the EU, I've kind of solidified my place within it. But also, I think being very kind of active in, within the um, institution itself as like a student um, representative. Um, I mean, a really a key kind of uh, uh, example of how frustrating 
things are is um, I think the Haku is now going through a process of creating code of conduct for the school itself, um, which is 20% international students, but not one thought was actually placed of the working group that was brought together to create that code of conduct. It was all in Dutch. So there's no actual, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's one of those palm face moments for this yeah. code of conduct. And there's not one, not one, there was not one initiative to actually bring in a non-Dutch speaking student into that group. And on top of that, the limitations that was provided for the reason of was to do with, uh, you know, difference, you know, understanding of language and the fact that these things will be translated eventually, but but also to do with payment, paying, because it's a paid opportunity and the fact that they would not, they weren't prepared to go for the process, uh, which is quite a time consuming process to actually be able to enable non-international and enable sorry international or non-EU students be part of that be part of that process and it it's just so frustrating to be within that system and all I feel like I can do is is you know at least try to speak from my own perspective but amplify the voices within that and, and and that that I that's kind of how I try to to, to go to go forward in um, this economic justice within the institutional aspect of it. Lila, would you like to sort of contribute? Yeah, I agree that it's like such a frustrating kind of experience and discussion, and the limitations placed by the institution are just like the constant brick walls, which is I think one of the reasons why No More later emerged. And it's just this really stark contradiction um, and like with the paradox where. I mean, for the Sandberg and the Rietveld, you can read their institutional plan and a lot of art academies and where topics of like diversity and inclusivity in education are paramount. And then in the same breath, almost, the non-EU fee, tuition fee goes up 10, to 10,000 euros. Different schools have different approaches to this, but it just bringing it down to the like core of the economic justice, I think, is a really um, important because it's creating like a hegemonic student body in a way and inviting kind of uh, bringing like I've just noticed this like bringing in international students for the kind of school's branding exercise but they're not providing the kind of support the pedagogy framework for international students to actually have a fulfilling educative experience and to contribute like but then there's this like yeah there's this is like I mean same um in terms of Harriet like I'm I'm not a you but I'm from South Africa and I grew up in New Zealand I'm white I can see and relate to the um the curricula of Western Europe, like it's my own culture that's reflected there. It's not, it cannot be said for my peers, my non-EU peers, but then also then kind of expected or um, tokenized in a way to contribute to, to bring their knowledge um, in kind of unpaid or uncompensated ways kind of um, deliver on it, um, which I think is quite unfair and only kind of defined in those terms. But I think within like, in my, within, I can only speak of the Sandberg and the Rietveld, but there's been very um, quite massive efforts to change some of these frameworks in terms of like hiring non-EU students. So I'm part of the student council and we were the first body in the school to push for non-EU contracts and now trying to make it a standard procedure. Like, yes, it's three or four weeks, three months, maybe sometimes of extra paperwork, um, mm. but it's providing a safety net for the people who in the beginning of the pandemic were just like, you know, people's currencies, like completely like, you know, half their income. It was like a very like difficult situation. Yeah, and kind of creating like non-EU alumni um, kind of support networks to share experiences and tips of like navigating the system because 
yeah, before you come to the Netherlands, you're supported, I think, both meatless quite well in the process that you land here. And it's like this whole bureaucratic system to navigate that is so alienating and yeah, impossible. So I think providing that kind of aftercare, but like the before, during and aftercare for non-EU students is like really important. I think as well, like there's this idea that like, I can kind of touched on it here. And I think this is really interesting. And um, I've like kind of people who aren't so understanding of the kind of art networks or art institutions kind of say, oh, you know, the idea that diversity within an institution is within a student population is complete rubbish. Um, how can you care for a diverse student population when you don't, that's not reflected in its staffing, of its, within its care structures, of its understandings, of its, within so many different um, infrastructures that, that uh, are not so seen on the surface. It's, yeah, people are constantly being let, let down and whether it's to do with aid of financial aid, I mean, even I was looking, it's, I'm a self-employed and I work um, a freelance alongside my studies, but even to understand how to become self-employed, how to go through those processes, it's such a minefield for me and as, as an EU person, I'm still accepted to be part of the EU. There is no help that the idea that care is just within the institution or care is only within the confinements of the institution it's not enough it's just not enough there needs to be more caring for you know how do you feel safe in the institution when you don't have a, a secure house or you're you know you're working for cash and you can't declare that like there's so many different infrastructures that are in place within institutions and i think these are where these networks have have, have popped up because there isn't you can't you don't know how to you know you don't know how to talk to an accountant because you seem you feel like you because of laugh because of little money you earn you're you seem you can feel like you're being a laughing stock because you're like well why would I have to talk to an accountant because I'm only earning a tiny amount but it's still it's these processes that have not all these structures that are not in place that just create burnout fatigue homelessness and so many other uh, horrible horrible situations yeah I was thinking as you both were uh, unfolded this for us and uh, I was thinking about how a lot of educational systems around the world are profiting uh, out of these sort of like false or false fake halfway whatever you want to call it ambitions for diversity and international profiling right uh, which is very much connected with with globalization I would say then you see how is it possible for us as let's say as infrastructures as networks to actually extract to mine the interconnectedness out of that globalization package and like put it at the service of the collective. Um, we, we avoid at all costs that togetherness becomes, you know, a profit and a value uh, on economic and monetary terms. Uh, and that we start looking at, you know, back into the, into the social values and the social and cultural values that are uh, quite important and that artists bring with them when you know when doing when creating initiatives when doing art projects um whatever kind of um infrastructures they are creating it seems to be filtered in a way by you know this what you could call a, a selective uh, migrant policy right it is not for all not everyone can actually access that world and so at a moment where I, I actually, on a personal level, really considering if labor is, is um, longer able to provide income for all, is that even possible? And so how do we start thinking about these human infrastructures for, you know, that are more commons oriented and solidarity economies and, you know, alternative models for, I don't know, participatory budgeting, whatever comes to your mind, right? Like, 
how do we develop like a post-capitalist behavior, really, that acknowledges the complications, the contradictions, and the paradoxes of how institutions think about institutionalize uh, their own power, right? And to kind of like uh, regenerate that power over and over again by changing constantly the grammar, but not the structure. And so the rhetoric and the discourse and the narrative are, you know, shifting, but the, interna the internal cultures and the infrastructures themselves are barely being modified. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just want to, like, it, I was triggered by what you both said, so, yeah. Yeah, I read something the other day, and it's from this, I've actually, the process of reading a really nice book called The Hologram, uh, which kind of looks into peer-to-peer -peer care. Um, and I think one thing that really stuck, stuck with me in one of the quotes was kind of the idea that we're, as a society or as, as, as individuals, we're persuaded more to trust the, the, the governments or the structures than with each other. The idea of trusting each other is is kind of completely like you know even to loan money or to lend money to each other is you'd rather you know go to the anonymousness of the of of, of you know loan sharks or like these awful organisations that supply money without a face to it than ask your friend for help. As a society, we're yeah we're, we're constantly projected to trust the governments over, which is just crazy. It's just mental, and I really kind of had to sit on that for a while. Because even like I think with my upbringing, the idea of uh, of trust and, and asking for help, even like I think for me, asking for help is an extremely difficult act, and I don't know where that's just come from. Being really kind of quite uh, I don't know, try to perceive the strongness of a woman, um, especially because a lot of the times I work within building practices, which is kind of uh, I'm a minority within that kind of framework, and and having to prove something. But in the same way, then I've had lost the ability to ask for help on the other hand and trying to regain that trust, I think, is helping with these networks. But the idea of solidarity economy, I mean, I think it's really, really interesting. But I think that has to be, for example, like I was part of an alternative education program called School Down in the UK, which on paper is free. Um, and there is an, we, we work on, a, on, a, on an exchange uh, situation or we did at that time the cohort that I was involved in, we had worked on an exchange system where we, we we'd ask a lecturer or, a, or an artist to come and do a lecture with us and we'd offer labour for exchange, whether it could be childcare, whether it was um, painting their route, their, their house, it would be, could be anything. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it was a really wonderful way of, of offering something. But what I struggled with, and I think everyone struggled with I couldn't sustain that program being part of that program because um we were traveling every month to different areas in the UK and it was only we you know we've had accommodation that hopefully we could get somewhere to so, so stay somewhere for free but in the end I couldn't afford to take that time off work so I always kept hitting up against these capitalist structures that, that prevented it from being this kind of really idealistically perfect exchange-based education and thinking back now, compared to how I feel within the, you know, the, 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 the formal, what could be deemed as formal education, I, I felt I got a lot more out of that than I am struggling or things I'm struggling with now within more formal education, um, whether it be like I'm very dyslexic, so I'm really struggling with, with the support structures that are there for non-neurotypical students. But I really, yeah, I really would like to work further on with more solidarity economy or exchange because 
I think they are, they offer this idea of ask not asking for help as such, but a trust. There's more trust. It's a, it's a it's trust economy, which I think is so much more enabling. Or you know, but I think this is almost what these peer to peer networks that sort of such as mutual support platform and and uh, no more later are striving to do. Or I don't think it's a you know the perfect. It's not, there's no perfectness to any of it. We all have our individual problems. They all have problems within this within these structures. But it, at least I think we're striving to create safer uh, spaces for these conversations to happen. Yeah, I mean it's indeed a a different value system. I would say it's based on social reciprocity and trust, as you said, right, and community generated care, if you mm. want to call it that way, right. There's a collective agency there to, in a way develop together a, a community currency, if you want to call it, that is much more on the side of non-monetary exchange. Although monetary exchange is, I mean, it is it is needed, it is important. But this non-monetary exchange in the form of time banks or other kind of, uh, you know, soft or hard skills trades are what's actually paving the way for, for us to kind of like drive as a collective and as an individual, right? At least that's what I've seen from uh, from the perspective of Wagner's of Roma, and it's a long-term work, right? Laila, I, I don't know if you wanted to kind of like add something to, to before we move into the next into the next thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the efforts towards kind of this like trust or solidarity economy are like something I really um, deeply value and appreciate and want to agenda. But for me, it is so premises that there's a community in the first place and that for me has been one of the most shocking kind of experiences coming from New Zealand where I'd say there's a splintered left um, but there is kind of a sense of a group of people who share a similar goals working together um, for it and coming here and this isn't student politics but it's more broadly in the city I lived in Auckland but coming here like I was really in this like crisis moment kind of like arrived on our like yeah on our doorsteps it was just it just showed me this like complete like disintegration or atomization of that we couldn't actually come together or have this community to start organizing from or to even to build something like a kind of solidarity economy so I think for me like I I see these like as long-term goals that kind of but have to really have a lot of groundwork laid which means for me I'm maybe more focused on kind of even just education and kind of people like historicization of the context of like what we're talking about we talk about like economic justice or like what is the experience of being a like migrant artist or like marketized high education like what is social safety like you know these kind of issues and I think until there's like a shared understanding which is collaborative and made together of that history and why we're here now only like then the forward way feels clearer um yeah thanks for for the people because not everyone listening to this to this episode might be a non-human artist or an artist facing the same issues as we are and so and also you know for for the people here in norway and other places uh that might be listening to this for them to understand what are like the main challenges and main difficulties of the immigration system or that artists have to face while you know, trying to navigate the immigration system in the Netherlands. Uh, what would you say is the the most complicated thing? For for instance, like for us, you know, assessing time is extremely long. You might be invited to a residency. You cannot get that income because you cannot leave the country while your visa is being assessed, right? So you are basically, they're basically locking your, uh, your different sources of income and like, you know, you just lose them because of 
hyper bureaucracy, right? Uh, and just that's just one a very small example of that. Uh, but as well, like you know, patchwork economy, at least in Norway, you being a self-employed artist, you cannot work outside the arts and culture, right? So again, your possibilities for income are narrowed to to a single one sometimes, to a single one. Uh, and the gig economy has been, you know, hit it so hard since the pandemic. And even before, I mean, artists weren't even in a precarious situation, at least many. So how do we manage that uncertainty? How do we, yeah, start thinking about social interdependence in, in that sense? So I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the immigration system and, and what are the things that artists are struggling with. As, as I mentioned before, in, uh, also in Norway, for instance, you have to reach an income bar of 253,000 Norwegian kronos, which is, I think, 24, 23,000 euros on income uh, per year to, to, in order to secure another year here, right? Uh, and, you, and that's, I mean, not even Norwegian artists actually manage to, to make that money, right? Especially when you are an emerging artist. And so, yeah, I just wanted you to kind of like probably exchange with me a few chapters, a few episodes of how that might look like. I could rant about this for days. <laughs> um, I think the first moment or that first massive shock is you get asked, you're accepted into the school and you get asked, you need to now show 16,000 euros in your bank account. Uh, this is proof that you can afford your tuition and the two years of living costs. I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever had 16,000 euros in your bank account, like as a student, an art student, and people rely on their families to kind of either put the money in for a day. So they take a screenshot and people who forge it. But basically, this creates like a legal, it's a kind of legally binding. So when the pandemic hit, you're actually not eligible as a non-EU student for any of the government support because they're like, where's that 16,000 euros? I don't know anyone who still had access to that 16,000 euros. They were then kind of like gatekept from any kind of support and income. My school, I was lucky that my school kind of realized this and took efforts to create like an emergency fund, but it was still very minimal and only for three months. And I think what you were saying as well around um, working conditions in the Netherlands, uh, if you're a non-EU student, you can only work 16 hours a week. You can only work those 16 hours in one contracted job. And you have to have a contract and have a working permit, which an employer has to apply for. Obviously, if you're a student, the most of us are kind of looking for like bar hospitality work. And it's very uncommon, actually, for these workplaces to want to go through that process. I had an experience of been told that a working permit had been applied for, that I'd been granted it, um, only to find out at the when I got fired at the beginning of the pandemic that he had, like, it was illegal. He had, I was working illegally. He was paying me under minimum wage and I was not ever paid for sick or holiday pay. And even though he went through an investigation, nothing came of it. So very little, like, protection or even recourse for that. Like, I, I emailed lawyers, I emailed my school, and I wasn't able to get any assistance or help in that situation. So you're in a really precarious working environment, which I think is so essential that, um, schools also kind of structurally support the students that they're bringing over um, who are making massive sacrifices to come here. Yeah, and so I think definitely like around on the economic factor around that first sum of money and then the kind of working conditions, um, which are super precarious and often exploitative. I haven't yet got to that next stage of actually being like on an artist visa, so I can't speak to that. But yeah, those are two kind of barriers. Thanks, yeah. All right, what's your... What's your experience with that? Not necessarily yours on a personal level, right? But what do you know, what you've heard? I mean, I'm, I think most of my friends are non-EU um, students. And I think from the experience of being graduated from their BA, so quite a number of years of processes that they've gone through, or I've, I've cared for them as they go through it. 
I think I can, you know, speak from the from the perspective of uh, of being um, uh, an openness to talk to and being there for people to to cry through these processes and have that energy to be there for them to do that uh, is is truly traumatic and horrific for them. I mean, I've I've had friends currently now going through stages of of being living here for I think since they moved here for about up to ten years and going through the processes of applying for. Going for the process of potentially losing their um, nationality, their passport, to become uh, to be able to stay in the country, and having to choose whether they keep their original passport or if they choose to take on Dutch nationality. And I think the hypocrisy of it all, the fact that they've gone through such a traumatic process of being a non-EU student in the education system, which has provided no support for them whatsoever, and then living as an artist, applying for visas, applying for for funding to to prove they can have the visa in the first place to then have to choose to take that passport on of the dutch nationality or whichever nationality it is within the within the eu i mean you you, you don't really want to you wouldn't really want to do it because of the so so much connection and so much trauma attached to that process those processes it's so 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 upsetting to see and be on that caring side um, and see that trauma that my friends have gone through not only that, it's even, you know, so I think it's also the structures of of, uh, of of how much of the arts are valued within the society that you're within as well. And the uh, the assumptions, there are so many assumptions that come from maybe being a, a non-EU student as well. That, oh, you're, you know, your parents must have loads of money because obviously you're here for so many reasons. You know, you must be here because your parents have lots of money or or these. There's so many different assumptions and, and, and um, awful um, attachments to it as well. And that's that's a perspective that I can only talk from is it's trying to be there for my friends that are going through those processes. It's it's emotionally distressful for many. Um, and and I wonder, you know, I guess like we need some it is inevitable to, to, to kind of like go into collective dreaming and you know, hoping hoping the future will be different. But there's just nothing like it without without putting it into action, right? There's nothing like it without actually going into mutuality, into collective effect, into, you know, friendship and time and, and also maybe even like tactics up for, and you know, anti-self-exploitation, which happens at all time, right? And we have all probably experienced it at some point as artists, right? Especially when you're, uh, when the value that you are assigned as a person is based on how productive you are to the capitalist system and to the economics of a particular country, right? And so I wonder how solidarity takes shape in your within normal layer and mutual support platform. Uh, what, what kind of forms, shapes, you know, colors, textures, smells are there? What are the metaphysics of that collectivity and, and that, you know, practice of, of solidarity? What can you share with us that will encourage others to, to collectivize and to come together and to maybe slow down together or to maybe rest together, but also be hyperactive when it comes to uh, fight for your rights and fight for articulating uh, a, a comprehensive way of generating community well-being at the same time as for immigration policy uh, and, of course, economic justice, whatever that means for each one of us and as a group, right? Specifically, I think I, you know, from the MSP's 
from the perspective of being part of the MSP, the way that I see this act, these, you know, these acts of solidarity is, is how spanning the network is. It's not just students, it's teachers, it's lecturers, it's people with a different, different levels of privilege. And I think this is something that we all kind of address collectively that the people that are within this network, whether they have a full-time job, a part-time job, or that, whether they're even still practicing art or not, that is kind of an understanding that we strive for providing what is needed at that time and understanding that we're not always going to all be together in a room or online and having that idea of, of um, being open to that kind of quite fluid mechanism that works within it. And I think this is, I think this is when it becomes very tricky, but also becomes very realistic in its own right. And I think realism in itself is almost a kind of defiant act of this network how your how your your involvement um and how you kind of define your involvement uh, we all understand our own different positioning but we try to at least be open to understand our different position, positionings because we have of the knowledge we have of each other so whether we i think whether whether people in our network are still practicing art or not is kind of irrelevant to the cause it's it's being there being off offering yourself as a resource when you feel that you can you can work within that those conditions i don't know i I always find it's difficult because I always try to uh, speak from my my own own. I always speak from my own perspective in this because, like we always said, mutual support from is a very large collection of different people. So for me, I think it was so much so relieving to see a network of people that 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 bypassed this structures of the institution itself. It's in spite of the institution that exists. And I hope that if the institution even didn't exist, it still exists in its own form. But not to say that it's not had challenges. I think there have been a number of challenges throughout the kind of growing of the network, such as opportunities coming into the group and how that affects the dynamics and how that affects who speaks, who doesn't speak, who has the energy to speak, who needs to speak. And I think all these different layers of like complicating clatedness I think every time we meet, it's about unraveling that and saying, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And that shifts all the time. There's never one answer. And I think the idea that that shifts and that evolves and that changes in itself is an act of constant reflection on the solidarity that we strive to be. Yeah, it it seems to me like for a critical practice, you need critical behavior on a daily basis as well, right? And to kind of like check with each other all the time and, and really how hard it is because in a way it might look like creating a network it's the most easy thing but it's not to sustain it is actually what, what what it takes the time the energy to sort of like create a truly i don't know decentralized anti-hierarchical you know opportunity for all to actually have a say and while at the same time works as an informational comment, right? That's also why Barnashroma was initiated here. There was a lack of informative networks, but also how do we encourage sharing? And what do we share and how do we share it with? And and how do we do that? Uh, when you know there are many sub- subjectivities in the same room. It's quite um interesting to hear how it seems like you take on these challenges of on a very spontaneous way, like spontaneous in the sense that maybe spontaneous is not the right word, but sort of like in a flexible, very moldable kind of structure, which is very responsive to what's uh, the different inputs from the outside that have a sort of like a 
it, it shaped that relationship from from within in a way. I would like to hear what, what you Lila maybe have to contribute to to this part of that to this part of the episode. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, and that's I think difficult to answer um as one member of the the group who has had like you know, who's understood it as a different many different ways. Um, I think it doesn't even have I think if you each asked us what it is, it's all really very different. Like it's a very yeah. um, fluid thing at the moment. But I think this speaks to a lot of questions that I've been having when, when something starts at out of a moment of reaction or um and it has this reactive energy to it. Um, and especially on social media these things, the Netherlands has seen a kind of flurry of these actually in the last year as we've kind of lurched from crisis to crisis in the art schools and specifically through social media. And they kind of use a similar language, but I think for me, they kind of aren't engaged with that kind of daily activity and maintenance work and care work that's necessary for these to be kind of structurally um, strong, potentially like transformative movements or efforts or energies. But it's like, how do you harness that energy that, and that shared, shared sense of solidarity for that to go forward. And I think with in solidarity with No More Later, it's very much information channel, like a connective tissue, I think. So kind of sharing information and resources and kind of, yeah, the kind of experiences of non-EU students and kind of how to navigate the kind of bureaucracy here. But in terms of, I think, just coming to realize like, yeah, that it's, that it's, it's one of many and that we're not like, Though we may have realized in this brick wall that we've reached, you know, that there needs to be a wider network or collaborative effort at just sort of being honest with ourselves where we would come into that, like what our role is in that and how that, that could be facilitated. And I think, yeah, I mean, personally, for me, solidarity is most mostly maintenance. It's like the whole like revolution on the Friday who cleans up on the Monday. And I think that cleaning up of the Monday is some of the most important work that people are doing, but it isn't that sexy. It doesn't look good on social media, but it is the blood. Uh, that's needed um so it's just about equipping equipping people to 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 have that sense of um social responsibility of care and of trust and the kind of toolkit i think to to, to not burn out to not to not be exhausted or fatigued or be like manipulated by the institution or to handle different di like conflict and difference of opinion and the, the, the real challenges that come with trying to organize collectively that's a skill you know, that you learn through doing so Creating opportunities to learn that, I think, is, I mean, for me, in normal later, I hope something we can get involved with. And I think as well, what's really nice to see, the fact that even, like, I think we all have common urgencies and we have enough energy for so many different one of these urgencies, but as different collectives of different organisations, we channel our energies into these, but we're also connected within each other. I mean, even um, MSP, the members of uh, uh, later that were within MSP or still are part of that network. I think this crossover is super important to acknowledge that all this work is is happening. But I think it's also good to acknowledge it has been it's always been going on as well. This care work has always been going on for a long time. I think even in the case of the pandemic, this has a lot come to the forefront of whether it be care, whether it be care institutions. It's been you know really visually brought to the forefront which is amazing but it's always good to acknowledge in solidarity the fact that this has always been ongoing within the structures and it hopefully will continue to ongo be ongoing and I think what's so useful and great and even about this kind of podcast itself is how if we we can interconnect ourselves to be able to swap advice swap tools swap resources but also understand and have that understanding 
that we all have similar urgencies, but the ones that come to the forefront of each one, we have our, you know, it's like the, the war within the battle, like, or the battle within the wars, you know, we all have our different battles, um, but together that's kind of fighting some a bigger war against this economic transformative justice that I think we all have the commonality of. So I think that is really, really wonderful to see. And I think it's what's really interesting is being in the Netherlands and being in the UK and being also in the UAK educational system. I was part of a lot of groups back in, I was studying in Scotland, as the uh, universities or art schools have become complete um, cash cows, completely complete reliant on, on on the tuition, for extortionately high tuition fees, even more so for international students. The rise against that was so impressive, but also I, I, I never saw as much effect as is happening here. And that is what's so, it's so wonderful to see is, I mean, now you've got no more, uh, you've got the, pay, the different campaigns in the UK, and pay or pause, sorry, I forgot the name, the pause or pay campaign. But see in the Netherlands that how, even though it is small cracks, there's still, these cracks are growing. And that is really rejuvenating to see how much this work is helping and is making a difference. But it's also about this idea of self-preservation for the time when you need to take a time out, you need to pick your battle in another point to be able to then come back to the main forefront. Um, and I think there has, yeah, I think I hope and I think there is, there is the solidarity that uh, this idea of self-preservation, we have to care for ourselves to be able to care for the communities that we're, of it, we're within and the preservation within these groups, I think is needed, whether it's flexible, you know, organisation, the fact that other people step up when people can't step up. Yeah, we all have our own experiences of these different kinds of burnouts. And mm, yeah. I mean, what I, what I take from, from this is almost like, like a hybrid, a merge of what you both said. Um, and, you know, the powerful of this transformative gesture, this transformative factor connected to the ethics of connectedness, right? Like what sustains really uh, on a value level, on a principle level, uh, the rest of the, of the relationships that might, may arise within the network or within the collective, right? And you said, you know, we need to equip people, we need to sort of like, you know, this idea of social responsibility, there, there are common urgencies, but at the same time, there is a, I guess there is a need for livelihood autonomy, right? And also like, you know, being aware, taking care of the individual as at the same time, producing constant social agreements, social protocols that kind of like facilitate that involvement, that togetherness, um, that series of encounters as a collective, as a network. There is a lot of generosity there. There is a lot of intangibility, which is something that we have still struggling to put a different kind of like value to it, right? Like a peer-to-peer -peer value creation over the things that are, you know, intangible and are based on a different kind of set of monetary assessment than the, the traditional and the, and the, the conventional financial system, economic system. So it's almost like a, a economy of care or a care economy. And also minding, like taking in mind that a lot of, it's almost like, a, for me, it's almost like the decolonial word, right? Like when you talk about care and solidarity, it's one of those words that get saturated quite, quite fast, that it gets mainstream within certain branches of the art field. And so I wonder if it's possible for us to kind of like take it back and reappropriate it because, you know, it, it's been a little bit more than a little bit, just a little bit more than a year since the COVID outbreak. And, and we can see how care and solidarity are everywhere. Right. And again, the discourse, the narrative are building upon that without the practice in them. 
where the practice is lacking, the critical practice and the critical behavior is not there. The infrastructures are sort of like just a skeleton of a of a very beautiful wish that never comes to 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 realization. And so the work you guys are doing there, it's uh, extremely uh, valuable, extremely important, also for intercultural practice, right? Like this diversity of bodies and cultures and art practices. So I just, I think we, we're going to have to start wrapping up. Do you want to say something for the people that are listening? Some last thoughts? As you were saying that, I was thinking a lot about this idea of we had talked so much about decolonial practices and I saw something, especially within the institutions in the, in the Netherlands, the reaction of the institutions to the solidarity of Palestine and how horrifically the institutions have acted uh, uh, self-proclaimed we're not political spaces. Honestly astounds me the acts that are happening within these institutions and the idea of, you know, practicing what you teach uh, or practicing what you preach and presenting politically driven discourses through uh, different courses and to, you know, silence solidarity. My only kind of hope is to see the reaction from not only students, but also lecturers, tutors within these institutions. And I hope because of these different solidarity networks that are coming from different places within the institutions and outside the institutions, uh, I hope that we're on the right path to tackle it. And I think we are in the sense of these kind of ca this caring economy. I really hope we can reclaim this work because I find so often that the work that I'm making as an artist is re in reaction to not being cared for and not having not being listened to about my own personal needs or the needs of those around me. And if my practice is reactionary, my practice is reactionary to a lack of. Lila, would you like to help us with the wrapping up? <laughs> yeah, I just really wanted to echo um, on what Harriet was saying and something that in the last two weeks has really shown the kind of cruelty and um, hypocrisy of the institution. And I can comment like directly on the Reapong Sandberg, which itself has a program called Design and Design dedicated to um, critical design practice in um, the Palestinian struggle. Um, and we have a lot of uh, Palestinian students and there's been kind of a horrific sequence of actions or messages from the board or lack of or so silence, refusing to make a statement. And, you know, I, I really like they, they said it themselves the best, I think, which is like, yeah, decolonial theory is nothing about decolonial practice. And I, I think like in terms of institutional solidarity and solidarity within and without, like what I like what Harry was saying about these cracks that are starting to emerge. And I think the kind of platforms and networks that have been uh, developing are now allowing us in this moment to say, actually, this is completely unacceptable. And that together with students, staff, and members of the different academies that to kind of work together to challenge them on their kind of neutrality. Well, thank you both. It's been amazing to have you here. I, I really, really thrilled to have talked to you, really. It was really beautiful. Thanks. Thank you so much. Totally. And now, as we wrap up this episode, we leave you with a live audio feed from outside the UDI building. Listen closely to the frequencies of immigration bureaucracy.